Heavenly Father, thank you again, Father, for bringing Annette and I back safely. Thank you, Father, for your care and guidance over Oak Hill Bible Church in our absence, for giving them over to the good and, and trustworthy hands of the leadership here. And thank you, Father, that your word was taught regardless of who was in the pulpit. And, Father, I thank you this morning. We're back in James. Sometimes it's hard to thank you, Father, for something that convicts us so deeply, but we know in our heart of hearts that is the thing we should be thankful for, Father. And this morning, Father, we expect that you will bring to us through your word a message that is both universal and personal. We know it is universal by its truth and by its timelessness, but, Father, we also know that it is not meant to merely fill our heads, but it is to live in our hearts and and draw us to a closer walk. So it is personal, Father. It is designed to speak to each of us about how we live our life, how we understand you and, and your expectations. So I pray, Father, that the Spirit's work this morning would be in our head and in our hearts. I pray that we would hear words spoken by a man, but know that they have come from you because they are out of your word. And we would give it the due attention that your words deserve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been two weeks since we were in James, chapter 2. And like any two-week break, it can be difficult sometimes to get back into the line of thought that the author had us in. But I think with just a couple seconds of review, we'll be able to jump right back in. We're in chapter 2, where we left off. And right about chapter 2, verse 9, will be the starting point for this week's teaching. You remember, perhaps, in the first eight verses of this chapter, we were watching James, listening to James discuss this test of our faith, this new test of faith, which was how we as Christians respond to another Christian when there are social distinctions among us. When we are confronted, for example, with a brother or a sister who may have a high social status, higher than our own, are we going to follow our flesh and show favoritism to that person, hoping to curry favor in return for some particular desire we have? Or are we going to remain indifferent to their social distinctions, treating them all the same, all Christians in the brotherhood of faith, of faith the same, and doing that, we would gain the favor of our Lord. So that was the, the dichotomy or the, the choice that James lays before us in the first eight verses of the chapter. Show favoritism, live in the flesh, seek the favor of men, and disappoint our Lord. Or see Christians as God does, all the same. And instead of seeking after them for, for reasons of personal favor, seek after the favor of the Lord by treating everyone the same. And James says, if we were to find reasons to show distinction within the body of Christ, we are making judgments based on evil motives. That's how we began the chapter. Then as we finished last time I taught, we looked at the very end of those verses as James started to mention a royal law, or as he will later call it, the law of liberty. Paul calls it the law of Christ. This is a law that rules over the hearts of believers. The New Testament believer is under this particular law. And James says that when we show favoritism, we break this law, this law, this royal law, because we have not treated our neighbors as we would hope to be treated. Now, in the remaining part of this chapter, chapter 2 today, and also going into chapter 3, James is going to begin to explore the consequences of failing these tests. Remember, chapter 1 was all about different tests that come upon us in our faith. Chapter 2 began with a new test, the one on favoritism. But James begins to explore what are the consequences of a Christian who lives their life in such a way that they're breaking this royal law that we live under as part of the new covenant. 
And now, having mentioned this law and the, the risk of transgressing it, James now moves into a discussion about that issue to help us understand what it means to break this law. The next part of this chapter is probably one of the, the top parts of Scripture that I would take a Christian, particularly a new believer, who's trying to understand what it means to be a Christian in practical terms, in the way we live our life. Many Christians believe they're under the old law, the law of Moses. That's a mistake to think that. Others know that they're not under the old law, and so they think they're under no law. Well, that's also a mistake. And this sets us straight. We are under a law, it's called the royal law, and there are consequences to violating that law. James 2, verse 9, let's begin there. James says, If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Well, let's try to understand what James is saying here with respect to law. Let's just repeat the fact that he's teaching that when you show partiality, you are transgressing a law. You are sinning. Earlier in verse 8, he specified that the law he's talking about here is not the law of Moses. He just specified in verse 8 from the last time I taught that the law that he's talking about is the royal law. And that law is different than the one that Moses provided. It was a two-part commandment that Jesus himself said was the summation of all of the law. And it was love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's a two-part commandment, which Jesus said sums up the entirety of God's law. And it is now the guiding law, the guiding principle for all New Testament believers. And when we show partiality, James says, we violate the second part of that commandment. We are not treating our neighbors as we would like to be treated. We have started to be partial to some instead of to others. And that partiality is a violation of that second half of that commandment. And then James adds that whenever you break the law, any part of it, you then are guilty of breaking all of it. The phrase in the, in the Greek when he says, whoever keeps the law, whoever keeps the law in verse 10, that is describing the thinking of an individual, the way they're thinking, not their actual behavior. It's someone who is saying to himself, I am keeping God's law. But to that person, when they make a single mistake, they are failing to keep the law that they think they're keeping. He offers an example from the Ten Commandments. He says, if God has said don't murder and God has said don't commit adultery and you do one, but you don't do the other, you have just assuredly become a transgressor of the law as if you had broken both of them. The reason is because the same lawgiver has established both. You have offended the lawgiver when you fail to keep all of the law that that lawgiver has given us. It's not a matter of counting up laws you've kept and keeping track of the ones you haven't. It's about the lawgiver and whether you've offended him or not. You could say it this way. It is worse to violate two laws instead of to just violate one. But it is not better that you violate just one instead of violating two. There are varying degrees of sin. There are varying degrees of punishment provided in God's law. But the bottom line is even one offense offends the lawgiver. And once you've offended the lawgiver, you have a price to pay. Edmund Hebert said it this way, and I think this sums it up. He said, our obedience to God's will cannot be on a selective 
basis. We cannot choose the part that is to our liking and disregard the rest. The entire law is the expression of his will for his people. It constitutes a grand unity. To break one corner of a window pane is to become guilty of breaking the entire window pane. So if the law that we are under right now is a two-part commandment, love your God, love your neighbor, and you show partiality, you stop loving your neighbor. But by definition, you are also no longer loving your God. It is an all-or-none proposition. And in that sense, our faith and our love for God are closely interconnected. You cannot go around doing things that are contrary to the commandments of the God that you claim to love. Those are incompatible. And therefore, you weaken your confession and we limit our usefulness to God when we live that way. So that's the basic principle here. That's the principle of why it is that laws matter even to the Christian who is no longer under the Mosaic law. Because we have these other two standards that guide everything we do. James now gives us the consequence. And here's where I think the teaching begins to become not only more convicting, but a whole lot more important for the sake of our daily lives today. He gives a consequence here of failing to live out our faith in keeping with God's expectations. What happens when we don't follow those two laws? James says this in 2.12. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. James says we will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, the law of liberty is a standard of conduct for every believer. It replaces the law of Moses. The law of Moses was the law that condemned us prior to faith. Paul says that we were under a tutor in Galatians, and that tutor was the law of Moses. And it showed us our faults, demonstrated our need for salvation, pointed us to Christ, And at the moment we were believing in that gospel, we were no longer under that tutor. It had done its job. We are now under a new law. Paul describes it in the New Testament in Romans chapter 7, like someone who leaves one marriage and joins another. In 7.1, let me just read you six verses. Listen to how he describes this transition that we all have gone under or gone through, leaving one law and joining a new law. Romans 7.1, he says, Do you not know, brethren, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she joins to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that to which we were bound, so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter." I'm not going to expound on that entire passage. Let me hit the high points and show you how it relates to what James is saying. Paul says before we came to faith, we were wedded. We were in a marriage, if you will, to the law of Moses. Unfortunately, the law of Moses condemned us for our sin. It was not a marriage that brought us to life. It was a marriage that could only lead us to death because its only purpose was to show us how in the law we were failing 
to be uh, live to the to the standard that it represented. We were failing to keep the law. But because we were wedded, just like God's law regarding our marriages with our with women and men, under law, you cannot marry two people at the same time. If you are married to one person until one of you dies, the the two people are not eligible to remarry according to scripture. And therefore, he says, just like in that situation, we were going to be wedded to the law until such time as one of us died, either God's law or us. But in this case, it is not the law that dies. God's law is not going to end in the sense that it goes away. The one who died was you and I. We died in the sense that we died with Christ on the cross. His death was in our place, and spiritually we are seen to die with him on the cross from God's point of view. So as we accept Christ's sacrifice, we are put to death in our old nature. At the moment of that spiritual rebirth, we come back to life, born again, in the spirit, unmarried, or let's say it differently, eligible for a new marriage, because our first one was put to an end by virtue of our death in Christ. Paul then says, in the birth we had in faith, we were immediately joined to Christ. We have a new marriage partner, if you will, our groom in Christ, and that marriage partner now brings a new law. The new law, he says, is the newness of the spirit rather than the oldness of the letter. The letter refers to the letters that were engraved on stone that made up the law of Moses. He said, you had that marriage partner before, now you've got a new one in the spirit, the one that comes in the new covenant. Paul says it another way in 2 Corinthians, very short passage. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5, talking of himself, he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And look how he describes his relationship. He says, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we move from a relationship that is constrained by law to a relationship that is defined by liberty. But they both have expectations. They both have law. They both have rules, for example. And liberty does not mean freedom to sin. It means freedom to follow God's spirit in obedience and listen to his will. And doing that because we know our righteousness has already been obtained. Let me give you an example that begins to illustrate, I hope, what Paul and what James is talking about here. Imagine a situation where you have a son working for his father in the father's business. And he is an employee. He has to show up at work. He has to do his job. He has to be a good employee, even even though his dad is the boss. He he can't go to work and, and just mess around and waste time. He has to be a diligent worker at this job. And he's working because he wants to retire and he has a retirement goal and he has to work a certain amount of hours. He's going to have to be at the company a certain number of years. And he's hoping that if everything works out just right, he'll save enough money and he'll be able to retire successfully. And while he's in this position, he works hard every day doing his job in the way it's required, striving to reach his retirement goal. Then one day, unexpectedly, the son receives a large gift of money from his father. His father just decides that he wants to award his son a large portion of his money uh, out of love and out of a desire to give something to his son. And this amount of money is large enough to more than take care of all of the son's retirement needs. In one minute, he suddenly reaches his retirement goal while he's still a young man. 
Reminds me of a story of an old man who was asked by a younger man how he made all his money in life. And the older man said, well, it was 1932 during the Great Depression, and I was down to my last nickel, so I, I used that nickel to buy an apple. And I spent the entire day polishing the apple to make it look as good as I possibly can. At the end of the day, I sold the apple for 10 cents. The next morning, I took that 10 cents and I bought two apples and I spent that day polishing both of them till they looked just as good. And I sold them at the end of the day for 20 cents. And I continued this system. And at the end of a month, I had earned a fortune of $1.37. And then my father-in-law died and left me $2 million. That's the same idea here. A man working diligently, steadily, trying to get to where he wants to be doing it according to the rules of the job that his father had laid down. And because that was what was required to earn what he needed, it also defined his relationship to his father. His relationship to his father was one of being restricted to the working out of certain rules on the job in order to get what he needed. He wasn't free to do whatever he wanted because if he were to leave the job and spend the day doing something else he'd prefer, he wouldn't reach his goal, or at least he didn't think he would. So that became the way this son worked in relationship to his father. But now the gift arrives, and now the son is free from all of those burdens and restrictions. There's no need for him to go to work every day and work like he had. He doesn't have to limit his behavior to strictly what he needed for his inheritance. He's already got his inheritance. Now what does he do? He can begin a new phase of his relationship with that same father. The son can now serve the father in new ways and do so knowing his security was already in place. So it became an entirely different relationship. Now, previously, before he had that gift, what would have been the test of his love? The test of love for someone who was still working prior to getting the gift would have been how diligently he showed up to work every day and how carefully he kept all the rules that were a part of that job. That was really the test of love. Did he respect and obey his father? But now that he no, no, no longer needed to work, the test becomes whether the son will still listen to his father, obey his commands, and do what's required, which will now probably include a wider range of things, things that weren't necessary before, but now he's free to go do them. Now it's a test of love in that respect. Think of yourself now as that son with your father in heaven. You and I, before we knew him, if we were to obtain our, internal, our eternal inheritance based on work, not that it was possible, but if we were to even try... It would have been that kind of diligent daily effort to keep the law. And every time we tried, it would have only given us more evidence that we weren't making any headway. That we were one step forward and two steps back. And our relationship with God would have been defined exclusively by a kind of works mentality, a trying to achieve something that seemed impossibly far off and we don't know how we're ever going to get there. And the burden would never end. But now... He's given us our inheritance. It's ours already by faith. Now the question is, what do you do in relationship to the Father, having already received the thing you might have been working for previously? Now it's a test of love in that respect. And our Father in heaven, James says, will make a similar assessment of us at our moment of judgment. We've already been given a place in the kingdom. Our salvation is already assured by faith. So now the question is, what are you doing to serve the Lord now, knowing that that's already in place? James says, judgment awaits the one who fails to show mercy. Judgment awaits the one who fails to show mercy. James mentions mercy here because he's been speaking about the one who would be partial to another Christian. He says, when we show favoritism to one believer over another, we are the one who has failed 
to show mercy because we made a judgment about somebody else. James says, when you do that, you violate the royal law. And if you do that, you should expect that the lawgiver, when it's time for your judgment, will look upon your life from that point of view and say, you didn't show mercy, Steve, so now I'm not going to show mercy to you. Because I will do, essentially God will do the same thing to me that I was doing to others in the faith. He will show partiality, only it won't be to my favor. It will be to someone else's favor, not showing the mercy that I didn't show. Now, this gets uh, believers concerned. The concern, of course, is what are we talking about when he says judgment? And exactly what are the consequences that are being proposed here? Remember, we're talking about a judgment of believers. This letter is about living out your life as a believer. What is the judgment that a believer faces? Let me read something out of Hebrews. Hebrews 10:26. The writer of Hebrews describes what happens to a believer who enters into the judgment moment, having not lived according to the royal law. Hebrews 10:26. He says, "If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment." And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The judgment fire that the writer of Hebrews here is describing are not the fires of hell. That's one of the quickest ways to misunderstand both the the book of Hebrews and the book of James. Most people, when they hear the word judgment, think of only one moment. The judgment that goes before those who have not believed. The great white throne judgment. The one that comes at the second Resurrection, time when all unbelievers are judged by the books of the deeds of their life and are condemned to the lake of fire for their sin. That's the judgment we typically assume is in view anytime we see the word. But the problem with that understanding is that there are two judgments mentioned in Scripture. There are two moments of judgment. One is the one I just described, but the other one is the judgment for the believer. And if the letter is right written to believers, why would we assume that when he says the word judgment, He has suddenly left the context of believers and is now all of a sudden talking about unbelievers. That would be a wrong method for interpretation. To keep it in its context would require that we look at the judgment that is spoken about for believers and then try to understand the consequences from that point of view. The writer of Hebrews was in the same context. Believers who have gone on willfully sinning, he says. And he says the Lord will judge his people. Hold them accountable. And there is a judgment, and that judgment fire is the judgment for believers. And he says, if there were severe judgments allocated or allotted to those who violated the old covenant, being a weaker covenant, then what kind of judgments are coming for those who are in a new covenant and do not keep its tenets, its principles? Remember, they both have law. The law of the old covenant was 613 rules for how to sacrifice and live. And, and atone and do all these various things. That law is put aside for the believer. Now in the new covenant, we have a new law, the law of liberty, the royal law. It has two parts to its commandment, two broad-ranging commandments. 
But those commandments have similar expectations for how we live or, or their own respective expectations. If we violate that law, the writer of Hebrews says, do you think you get away with it? Do you think God just turns a blind eye to that? His greater covenant, you violate its expectations and nothing will happen? That seems like a foolish expectation, doesn't it? He says there will be a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Which fire is he talking about? Well, Paul describes this very same fire when he talks about how believers will face judgment. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, Paul says, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, meaning the judgment day, will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Here's what I'm finding as I, as I read the scriptures and as I listen to believers talking about their understanding of, of the judgment moment. I think we have come to believe about our judgment the same things we used to believe about ourselves before we came to faith. By that I mean this. Before we came to faith, we didn't walk around expecting that when we came to God on our judgment moment, we were going to find ourselves in big trouble, did we? By and large, unbelievers assume they're going to work out. It's all going to work out in the end. Somehow I'll be good enough. Somehow God will think I did well enough. And there's always someone worse than me, so I'm sure I'll be fine. We come to faith because we come to understand our sin and the fact that it wouldn't have worked out well. <laughs> if we had waited for that moment and relied on that expectation, we would have been sorely disappointed. We would have stood before the holy and just God and realized we didn't even come close to meeting his standard and we would have been condemned for it. But now, having come to faith, we understand our righteousness is given to us by Christ. It's not of our own. And then we start getting teaching around the judgment for believers, a judgment of, of works designed to test our work and, and assign us reward. And we go back to the old way of thinking. We start assuming again, I'm sure I'm better than most. I'm sure it's all just going to work out in the end. Everyone thinks they're above average, right? What Scripture tends to point out, though, is the opposite. As the writer of Hebrews says, if we have looked upon the favor God has shown us in the new covenant and we have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant, if we have insulted the spirit of grace, if we have made a life of disobedience as our witness to this covenant that we have been brought into by faith, we should not expect to show up at the moment of that judgment when our work will be tested by fire and not see ourselves consumed by it. That word consumed doesn't mean put to death. It means our work and our life's testimony gone. It means consumed in the sense of, as Paul says, coming through as through fire with nothing to show. That will be a terrifying moment. You see, I don't want to overstate the judgment moment to the extent that we lose sight of God's love. But neither do I want to emphasize the love of grace to the extent that we lose sight of God's judgment power as well. Because that knowledge of his judgment, that reality of the fact that we will be judged for our work, should be an ever-present consideration as we make decisions about how to live out our faith. As we face these tests he's been laying in front of us, when we have that moment to decide, do I take the test and pass it, or do I live back in my flesh and fail it, 
that moment is the moment to think about the terrifying judgment fires that come before all of us. And if it motivates us to do the right thing, that's not a bad reason to do the right thing, if that's what it takes. As Jesus said, it's better to pluck out your eye than to suffer for the sake of sin. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as we finish out the section I'm covering today, because we are about to go into now probably the most misunderstood part of the book, maybe one of the most misunderstood parts of the New Testament. And it is only understandable in the context in which we just find, found ourselves talking about the need to obey the royal law, talking to believers and mentioning the consequences of a judgment fire, which refers to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat in which our work is evaluated. Keep that context in mind and then go with me into James chapter two, verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. You've probably heard these before, I'm sure, and you may have even wondered in some cases what he was saying, and you may have heard multiple explanations for what he is saying. But the context will tell us what he meant, just as you would expect. James says, what use is it to have faith, but yet not have works? The word for use here, when he says what use is it, the word use is ophelos in the Greek, and it means profit or advantage. Of what profit is it? Or to what advantage is it? So what he's asking here in my own words is, how can a faith without works profit you? Or said another way, how do we expect to profit from a faith that is absent works? Remember, there is no credit at the judgment moment simply for having faith. When we show up at the judgment seat of Christ as we die, Paul says in Ephesians 2.8 and 2.9 that by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. The faith we all claim is not even from us. It was a gift given to us so that we would believe. And Paul says that was so that it would be not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if we go to that judgment moment and the only thing we have to talk about is our faith, it doesn't matter to God because that is to his credit, not ours. So now what do we have to rest on? He's saying, of what profit is faith without works? How do you stand before the judgment moment and hope to be rewarded if the only thing you have to show for yourself is what he gave you to begin with? No advantage, no benefit. It will be nothing to boast about. James gives an example, and he uses the example here specifically of the, of the person who is without food, without clothing, in a situation where they have needs, and we hear of those needs, and we turn around and we say to that person, you know, you should... Um, you should go off and be warm, be filled. Maybe another way we'd say it today is, I'll pray for you. And I'm not saying prayer isn't a legitimate way to respond, and certainly I know it's sincere many times. But the point is, if you're in a position, or if I'm in a position by our works, to rectify the situation, to give somebody one of those things they need, and we decide not to take that opportunity, we merely give them lip service, I guess is the way to put it. What James is saying is, that response did the person no good, no profit for them. It did us no good because there's no profit in our works for the sake of judgment. We have nothing now to, to point to when we speak to, to Christ about our work in the faith. We did nothing. 
And it does God no good because there was no building up of his body, no testifying to his love, no witnessing opportunity through it. It did nobody any good. It didn't negate your faith. It just didn't profit you any. So James asks, can that faith save him? And there are largely three views. And I want to show you which one of those three is correct. First, some have thought that James is teaching that works are a necessary component for salvation. I had two Mormons come to my door two nights ago, and um, they regretted it, I think. But I invited them in, and an hour and a half later, they finally forced their way out the front door. But as that conversation matured, you would expect it would go eventually to this, and it did where they would believe and have been taught to believe that there's a faith component, certainly. But then from that point forward, there's a works component which elevates them to higher degrees of righteousness. That's the the false teaching of the Mormon faith. And when I asked them to prove that view, where did they go? This verse, these verses, they jumped right to this point of James, which I found very interesting since I was studying that, that part of the book. Their argument was, what else could he be saying except that he's saying you have to put the two together if you want to get where you want to go? Paul contends with or he discounts this view in Philippians 3.8. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, look at what he says. He says, and that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul says, I don't count anything I am or have done to be a contributor to my righteousness. I count myself righteous before God because I have received that righteousness from him. Christ's righteousness given to me by faith. So Paul completely discounts that. So here's the dilemma. If you were to believe the first interpretation, this one I'm describing, you would have an immediate problem in Scripture because you would have Paul, an apostle of Christ, saying definitively you are saved by faith and not by works. Not just in the verse I read, but also in Ephesians and various other places. Then you would have said that James argues the opposite point of view. One of them is wrong, and if, you both, if they're both counted as Scripture, you've got a big problem with Scripture and with the, the spirit that is supposedly writing it because it's self-contradictory. That's not what James is saying. James is not talking at all about works and salvation. In fact, James isn't talking about salvation at all. This is a letter talking about how to live as a believer, not how to become a believer. The second misinterpretation, the second way you get these verses wrong is to think that James is describing a person who has made a false confession. The view that every believer must have works, and if someone lacks a work or has no works associated with their faith, then they're showing you that they don't have true faith. That's the second misinterpretation. Friends, that's a false interpretation. There is no guarantee in Scripture that any believer will have a work. The whole point of the New Testament, largely, is to compel believers to have works so that they won't suffer as a result. If it were the case that every believer automatically has some level of works, then there wouldn't be all these comments in the New Testament, I would argue, saying you better have works. James has not been discussing true faith versus false faith. That has not been the discussion at all. It's not even in the context. He has been discussing the failure of believers to live according to the royal law. That's his context. And in the immediate preceding verses, James just introduced the subject of the judgment fire 
that tests our work. So if we leave it in that context, what is he saying? He's saying you have to pass these tests. You have to be a believer who keeps the the expectations of the covenant. And if you don't, there is a judgment fire moment which will reveal your failures in that respect. So then James asks, if faith produces no work, will that save you? Will you go through the judgment seat of Christ and come out of that saved, preserved, successful? Can that kind of a faith save you when you reach the judgment seat of Christ? The answer is no. You see, it's not soteriological. It's not talking about saving and judgment in the sense of eternal hell and eternal life. It's talking about a believer who has a choice for whether they enter that judgment moment with a successful result or whether they enter into it and have nothing to come out of it. And he says, if you're going to go into that moment trusting on your faith and no works, do you think that's going to save you? Do you think you're going to go through that moment successfully? Do you think I am? No. It's not going to save us in that sense. On the contrary, the Christian who enters into that moment without works will face a terrifying experience, as the writer of Hebrews says. And why wouldn't we expect that? We serve a holy, just God who came to us while we were yet still his enemy, who has died on the cross for our salvation and then called us to a life of obedience. Why would we not expect a demanding master? Like Jesus tells in the parables about the master who comes in from the field and the servant has to make the master dinner and then make his own dinner and never gets to sit down and then at the end never even gets a word of thanks. Why? Because that's what servants do. When did we get the thought that somehow God owes us anything? What the, the point is we owe him everything. And as a result, we have to understand there is a tremendous expectation that we would live according to the royal law now that we have been saved. And I think if you consider a believer who has been given all of that, seated at the right hand of God with Christ, has been brought into the family of God by faith, if that person now lives their life with a complete disregard for the lawgiver who has saved them, what should they expect? A man or a woman who's lived a life of stubborn disobedience to the Spirit's call, what should they expect when they face the Lord? As if suddenly we're all just magically poof made equal in heaven we all have the same harp the same wings and we sit on the same cloud and there's no distinctions based on the work we did here if that were truly the future we had in store then all of the commandments and all of the parables and all of the teaching of christ would make no sense why command us to be faithful with a little so that we can be faithful with more why command us to be a good and faithful servant why command us to do any of those things if there's no distinctions made at the moment of judgment Faith without works is dead, James says. Dead meaning lifeless, useless, of no benefit. Not dead in the sense of absent. Dead in the sense of no profit. I compare it to um, like a fire, a campfire. You know, when you wake up in the morning, the campfire is just nothing but, but ashes. And from our point of view, it's dead, right? But you know how it is. You can pull the ashes apart and blow on the embers, and most of the time there's enough heat left in the coals that they'll start a flame again, right? The fire's not dead in that sense. It just looks dead, and it's doing you no good until there's a flame. In the same way, the fire of faith in somebody's heart, it's there, but it may be so quiet and, and, and invisible and dead in their life that it does them no good, God no good, no one any good. That's the way James is describing it. I think we all have plenty to think about as we leave these verses and, and close for the day. And I'm going to leave you with three questions and you can answer them for yourselves. First, are we thinking about our actions and our priorities with an eye toward that judgment moment? Do we consider that moment when we make a decision? 
Secondly, do we consider how we are impacting that moment when we decide to do things with our time or our money or our effort that are self-serving rather than God-serving? And lastly, do we remember the royal law as we consider our actions, whether here or at home or somewhere else? Are we asking ourselves, is this a display of love for God? Or are we asking ourselves, did I just treat that person the way I would want to be treated? I mean, that's really the mindset that we have to begin to get comfortable with. A daily, moment-to-moment questioning of ourselves. When I just cut that person off in traffic, that's not treating them the way I'd want to be treated. When I drop that piece of trash on the ground, that's not really the way I'd want to be treated if this were my property. Right? On and on and on and on. It's that kind of daily inspecting of our life against that law, which then leads us to a spirit response, which ultimately becomes profit at the judgment moment. If this is your last day, are we ready to meet the Lord right now? If we were to show up before him right now, what would our grade be? And if you're not comfortable with the grade that you think you might be getting, then you would agree with me that we have some work to do before the Lord comes back. And we better not be in a state of dead faith that profits no one. We better be in an active state of works-based living, not to earn what we already have, but to please the one who gave it to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Lord, your uh, word is always convicting, but... As I study through the book of James, I feel, Father, that you have put this book before us because we need more conviction than we realize sometimes. Father, I do thank you that there are many in this church, many in these families who have lived their lives and continue to live live their lives, Father, with an eye toward works and not works for their own sake or for their own glory, but, Father, works that are designed to please you and to serve the body. We thank you for that. Each of us, Father, at some point, I'm sure, has had an opportunity to walk in the Spirit and has done so, and we have earned a profit of sorts, and and we have pleased you. But by that same token, Father, I know each of us have had many days when we didn't do that. And those those opportunities are lost, but we know, Father, there will be more. We know we're still here, and though we wait for you, Father, and hope that the Son's return is is soon, we, we also acknowledge that we have yet opportunity that our faith would profit us and profit you and profit others in the body of Christ. So, Father, I ask that you would, through your Spirit, continue to guide us into those moments, show us how we can be useful to you, how we can turn our faith to profit, glorifying you in the process. Let us uh, lean on one another for the support that is required to pass these tests. Let your word, uh, Father, be the instrument to guide us and to instruct us in how to pass them, and let our prayer life be diligent so that you may... You may encourage us and and convict us through it. And, Father, I pray as well that those around us would would be diligent to inspect our lives and to encourage us as well. Let all these things work to good, Father. Bring them all together. and, And in doing so, Father, let us have a testimony that is strong. And I trust, Father, that when we live in that way, you will bless us in many different ways, perhaps. But you will you will look upon us with favor, as you say you will. So, Father, we come out of here this morning ready to serve you again this week. I pray that our interests, Father, and our efforts will be directed according to your word and what we've learned. And I ask, Father, we might come back next week, if it be your will, and continue in our study. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.